Welcome to the start of Paralympics Month on the Triathlete Hour. The Paralympic Games start next week, and after all the excitement in Tokyo, we're ready to keep it going. Now, Alyssa Seeley kicks things off today with her fascinating and inspiring story. After getting into triathlon while in college, Alyssa started experiencing symptoms that didn't make sense. Extreme fatigue, passing out when standing up, an inability to walk. It took two years, though, to finally get a diagnosis. And then after surgery, she went back to Collegiate Club Nationals and became the first athlete with a disability to compete in the able-bodied race. Alyssa talked to us about the challenges of invisible versus visible disabilities, how her amputation was a good thing, and how she won gold in Rio at the debut of paratriathlon in the Games, and the whirlwind that came after that. Now, after months of life-threatening infections in her bloodstream last year, again left doctors stumped and had her in and out of the hospital, she has been panic training for Tokyo. But I, I wouldn't bet against her. Stay tuned for all of that before Alyssa heads out to Kona for pre-Paralympics camp after this break. Power your next adventure with Outside Plus. Our Outside Plus membership gives you access not just to exclusive triathlete content, but to content across all our network brands like Backpacker, Velo News, Outside Magazine, and Trail Runner. With an annual membership, you get two magazine subscriptions, two VeloPress books, a library of resources like yoga journal meditation classes and clean eating meal plans, gear and event discounts, access to Gaia GPS, dozens of training plans through today's plan software, and a free finisher picks package each year. All for just $99. This is the world's best resource for training, nutrition, know-how, and how-to's. Join at triathlete.com backslash outside plus. That's outside P-L-U-S one word dot com. All right. This week, we're talking to Alyssa Seely, the defending Paralympic Rio gold medalist. And, uh, and if you can hear her dog breathing, she just got done with a run. She's training for Tokyo. Alyssa, I always misspell your name. I always forget the second L. And then I saw somewhere that that is only because it was misspelled when you were in the hospital as like a kid? Yeah. So um, my parents had decided on my name to be Alyssa and my dad filled out the birth certificate. And the running joke is he's like terrible at spelling. And so he spelled my name with two L's instead of one, two L's and one S instead of one L and two S's. And um, so, yeah, now my name is spelled very uniquely. I had never met another Alyssa with the same spelling, actually, until somebody like a week ago messaged me on Instagram okay. and had seen a commercial I was in and was like, oh, my God, I'm an Alyssa. And it's spelled <laughs> the same way. <laughs> and so um, I have now met somebody else with the same spelling, but it is very unique and gets spelled wrong frequently. That's kind of, she saw you in a commercial. So, you know, <laughs> I mean, we're amping up our media coverage here. Have you been like very busy getting ready for Tokyo, kind of all of the obligations you have in addition to training? Uh, yeah, it's been, it's definitely been a really crazy past six months. Um, right. You know, obviously COVID delayed a lot of, you know, the games, but then also a lot of um, production and mm. shooting for different um sponsors or other obligations outside of training. And so there has been kind of like a last minute push to get everything in. So training, media obligations, sponsorship stuff. It's been pretty busy for sure. You're also kicking off. So we did like an Olympians month and we had Olympians on every week and we were kicking off our Paralympians month here. But I think what's kind of interesting is you actually got into triathlon kind of before you went through surgery and before, like, I don't know if the word, as a person without a disability, you got in triathlon. And I wonder if, is it different doing it that way? Like that you knew it one way, now you know it a different way? Um, so the good thing about triathlon and paratriathlon is all of the rules are the same. You know, right. we follow the same rules. We race on the same courses. Um, there definitely are some differences, like mainly in like the little intricacies, like qualification processes and stuff like that. Um, but what I do think really helped me being an athlete before I acquired my disability was really like the life miles I've acquired over mm. my life. Um, you know, there's people who didn't really start sport or start elite sport until after they acquired their disability. And um, so, you know, they missed out on years and years and years of kind of life miles and life experience. And um, 
I think as endurance athletes, we can all agree, like those life miles really mean a lot um, to us and to our ability, um, both as like an athlete and um, physically, but also mentally and emotionally, like the lessons we learn during those times. I mean, you played like lots and lots of sports as a kid. So what made you finally decide, oh, triathlon, this is my, this is my thing. My parents put me in absolutely everything you could imagine from karate to dance, um, running, swimming, like literally everything. And I just think that was such a great way to grow up because when I look back, you know, the lessons I take forward with me now, I've learned them across a variety of different sports and disciplines. But what made me choose triathlon is really my short attention span. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I've always loved running. Um, The very first time I fell in love with running, I was in second grade. And so I have loved running my entire life. But I did get kind of bored of running day in and day out, six days a week, there wasn't much variety multiple times a day. Um, And so I was looking for like a new challenge, something to really like spice up sport again. And I had heard a little bit about triathlon. And I was like, let's go, let's do it. Let's see what we can accomplish. And, um, that's how I got here. I did my first one and I really fell in love with having the opportunity to train different disciplines because I feel like there's always a day when I wake up and I'm like, Oh, I don't want to ride my bike today, but I could swim. I could swim for five hours. And so, Mm -hmm. um, that's really what has kept me intrigued and going and chasing bigger and bigger and better dreams. Um, because there is just so much variety. You started it at, I always mix up the Arizonas at one of the Arizona colleges, right? ASU? Yeah, the better of the two. Arizona right, well, the better of the two. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and so, I mean, I, I started uh, trying college too, and it's like a totally different kind of scene. I, I mean, I think it's part of what like draws people in, right? It was a, it's a lot more, I mean, was it more fun or more elite? Um. I think in college, it was really just more fun. Um, My best friends from college were fun from triathlon. Mm -hmm. And we, you know, we had just so much fun together chasing goals and PRs. And we just found a way to build sport into our lives. Um, And it really became a lifestyle. And I started competing elites in my senior year. So that's kind of really where I made the transition from collegiate to elite. Um, And although elite is incredible, I have just never felt the same vibes as collegiate racing. I mean, when you go to collegiate nationals, like still to this day, one of my highlight races was racing the draft legal race. Um, You know, you have thousands and thousands and thousands of um people just cheering for their schools and the camaraderie of like the whole thing um, and the antics, you know, it's just so right. fun. The body paint, the giant blow up mascots, the, it, it just was such um, an incredible opportunity in college. Yeah. I was like, is it still that crazy? Cause I know like, I don't know. It's gotten like more formal over the years, right? I, maybe it's not. I don't know. I mean, I guess like I'm kind of old now. I mean, I was <laughs> racing, I mean, I was racing collegiate, 10 plus years ago. So maybe it's not the same. Maybe it is definitely more elite now. Um, But I don't know. I just, I have such fond memories of racing in college. Oh, for sure. And so, I mean, this is like the whole part where obviously your story gets crazy. I mean, you started racing in college, kind of like a lot of us have or did. And then almost immediately you started to have issues, right? I mean, and it was just, it took you two years to find out what exactly was going on and how, I mean, how do you kind of deal with that two years of like, no, I know something's wrong, but all the doctors are like, no, no, you're fine. No, nothing's wrong. Those two years, um, honestly, there's really no words for them. Um, I have faced a lot of challenges in my adult life um, and in my life in general. But for two years, I lived in and out of a hospital. I went from, you know, a nationally ranked collegiate athlete to struggling to walk from my bedroom to the kitchen. Um, Running was out of the question. I passed out when I went from sitting to standing. Hmm. Um, And the reaction that I got from the medical profession and from doctors was just very underwhelming. Um, At the time, I was actually going to school. I was pre-med. I was hoping to be a doctor. Like I really believed that, you know, doctors were helping people and making people's lives better. And, and in some cases they do, I'm sure they do. Um, 
in my case, um, I was left with debilitating symptoms for two years, being in and out of the hospital, being told I was crazy, that there was nothing wrong with me, that I was seeking attention, um, that I was overdramatic or <laughs> that I was, you know, and I was a woman and we were just hysterical. We just hysterical. Yeah. Right. And hysterical was used multiple times. Um, and I really like, I lost my whole identity during those two years. You know, I say like I was no longer living. I was merely just surviving every day. Um, and, you know, I lost my dream of being a doctor. I lost my identity as an athlete. And for a while I questioned if it was ever going to get better or if that was just how life was going to be for me. Um, and luckily, um, I was able to finally get a diagnosis after two years. Uh, the challenges didn't stop there, but having an answer to what was wrong, um, being able to undergo surgery to stop the progression of it. And at that point, reclaim my life um, mm -hmm. was really a choice I made, but one of the most important decisions um, I, will have, I will ever make in my entire life. I had read somewhere that you actually requested all your own medical records and went back through them. And then that was where you kind of found the diagnosis in there. Yeah. Which is I, overwhelming. I was yeah. So, um, I was so disillusioned by the medical community at that point that I was sure nobody was going to help me. Mm -hmm. Um, and I've always been a very stubborn and independent person, um, that, I realized if somebody was going to help me, it was going to be me. Um, and if there was an answer, I was going to try to find it. So I requested over 7,000 pages of medical records, years worth of medical records. And I went through them word by word. And any word I didn't understand or know, I looked up. Any phrases that I wasn't sure of, I asked. I found you know, legitimate sources. And um, in doing so, I found... Uh, the diagnosis. And after finding it and doing some research and it matching my symptoms to a T, I called a doctor and um, talked with the nurse at the office. And she was like, wait, your, your MRI says what? Like your, C your CT scan says what? Um, and I told her again, and she's like, hold on one second. She put me on hold. And all of a sudden the doctor gets on the phone and he was like, you need to come in today. And, um, so that was kind of how I was finally diagnosed and how I got an answer and started moving forward. Right. Um, which is completely insane, by the way. I mean, I don't know if anybody else has ever tried to read medical records, but like, it's not easy to do. <laughs> like, <laughs> No, especially when you're a 19 year old, right. a 19 year old, and you are sleeping 20 plus hours a day because you're so physically exhausted, um, and deconditioned from your illness. And so what ended up being, and I never say this right, uh, it, but it was like a neurological issue. It wasn't, uh, yeah, I mean, it was so, manifesting physically, but it was a neurological deterioration, right? Yeah. So it's called Chiari 2 malformation. That was one of my primary diagnoses. Um, and in layman's terms, what that means is the very back portion of my brain, my cerebellum, was herniated into my spinal column. Hmm. Um, so a lot of pressure was being placed onto the cerebellum, which, which controls your heart rate, your breathing, your digestion, your blood pressure, like literally every single thing in your body that is automatic, that area of your brain controls. And, mm -hmm. um, and so obviously it's very important and it made perfect sense when, you know, like when my symptom, when we looked at my symptoms, there were times I stopped breathing. If I stood up, my blood pressure couldn't keep up, it would bottom out and I would pass out. Mm. Um, and, so that was kind of my primary diagnosis. And over the years, I acquired a lot of secondary diagnoses um, that the research is not great. It's very primitive at this point, but seem they seem to be related in some sort of ways. They don't know if it's genetic. They don't know um, kind of what the links are, but they're starting to see um, in cases that uh, there's a lot of these connected problems that I've been diagnosed with since. When you say it's like relatively primitive, is it just not that common? Is that why? Yeah, it's not. Yeah. Um, it's not a very common diagnosis. Mm -hmm. um, for those who are diagnosed, you're typically diagnosed either in utero via ultrasound or as a child. Um, I wasn't diagnosed until I was 19. Um, and 
part of me wonders if that's why um, it was missed or overlooked right. or ignored in my medical record um, is because, you know, like I went through 19 years of life and looking back when I spoke with the surgeon, it became very clear. I had symptoms my entire life, but I grew up like that. I didn't know any different. Um, they just weren't to debilitating to the same extent. Um, they started becoming more debilitating when I was about 13, 14. Um, perfect age for, you know, women to be told, women and young girls to be told they're hysterical um, or they're just too stressed or it's psychosomatic, everything I was told um, and was written off for for years. And so um, there's not a ton of research because it's not very common. And then unfortunately, it is a pediatric condition. Most pediatric pediatric conditions just don't get as much research funding hmm. as adult conditions. Oh, um, and that ranges from everything from cancer to genetic issues. Um, so. Huh. I never realized that. That's kind of crazy. Yeah. Yeah. But, but you got a diagnosis, you were able to have surgery and I think you were the first athlete. You actually went back then and competed at collegiate club nationals after surgery. I think you were the first athlete to, to compete like with a disability at regular collegiate club nationals, right? Yes. Um, yeah. So when I was in the hospital, I went to inpatient re neurological rehab after, um, I had a ton of neurological symptoms. I had a lot of trouble walking, standing, um, sitting. I was also very deconditioned from sure. everything that had been happening for two years. And the whole time, all I could talk about was being an athlete again, um, because, you know, my diagnosis didn't change who I was. I was still an athlete at heart. I was still super competitive. I had big goals and I had, you know, I was just still every part of me still existed. I just now had a disability and I literally became a joke at the, um, a joke and a wager at the, uh, neurological rehab and people bet if I ever walked again, they would do a triathlon. If I ever ran again and they would do a triathlon, if I ever competed again, they would do a triathlon. And, uh, that really just fueled my fire even more. I think I would have accomplished it on my own anyways. Um, but I was definitely going to do it when everybody doubted me. And so eight months later I competed in collegiate national championships. We do believe I am the first person with a recorded disability to do so. Did those people do their triathlon that they said they were going to do? Two of them did. I actually <laughs> trained two people for their first triathlons. Um, both actually did more than one. Um, one did a few sprints. Um, the other one actually got really into it all the way up to Ironman distance. Um, and, you know, we still occasionally go on a run or a ride together and, uh, you know, had, had formed a friendship outside of that. And that was really cool. That's kind of crazy. It's a very intense way to get people into the sport, but you're bringing more people in. <laughs> hey, they're the ones who did it. I just made them pay up. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, uh, I mean, all the things you're talking about so far to date, though, they're all like invisible disabilities, right? Like nobody can look at you. So you ended up ultimately also getting your leg amputated below the knee, right? Or yeah. above the knee. Below the knee. Below the knee. Below the knee. Which you said is the thing people can see. But they can't see all this other stuff going on, too. So it's like a weird kind of balance, right? It, it is really weird because a lot of people think that, like, my biggest disability is the amputation. Um, the amputation was in um, was an after effect of the neurological mm -hmm. injury. Um, and it's funny because everybody can see it. They just assume that's my only disability or that's like the hardest disability I struggle with. And honestly, at the end of it, like <laughs> I was walking four weeks after my amputation running about six, seven weeks after I did my first K 5k in three months and was back competing in triathlons in just four or five months. Um, having a prosthetic was way more functional than having the completely damaged foot that I had. Um, but there's just this like, I guess, you know, misunderstanding that if you can see a disability, it's worse than one you, one you can't see. Um, and, and being an amputee does have its own challenges. Don't get mm -hmm. me wrong. But at the end, you know, at the end of the day, I wake up every morning and I put my leg on instead of, instead of putting a shoe on. Um, and that's kind of how I see it. Whereas the rest of my disabilities really do play so much more of a role in my life. But you had to, I mean, at that point then you decided to get your uh, lower leg amputated because of the issues you were having, right? Was that like a hard decision to make? Or at that point, was it just like, no, like you're saying, like the leg works better. <laughs> <laughs> so when it was first brought up, I literally like got up out of the, like the office that I was in and like walked out. I was like, <laughs> I literally just learned how to walk again. Like I, what were, 
we're talking about amputation now? Like what? Um, but after a few years, it did become, I had seen a handful of surgeons, probably eight or nine surgeons. Everybody had different opinions. Um, most of the procedures they wanted to do were experimental. And mm-hmm. uh, most of them had a very, very, very low chance of success. We're talking like a few percent um, and would have required multiple surgeries over multiple years and really, in my mind, only prolonged my disability um, Mm -hmm. or in my pain and inability to be active or return to to the job I was doing and things like that. And so um, at first, I think it was very daunting, um, but it did become very clear over time that that was my best chance at regaining an active lifestyle, whatever that looked like. Obviously, at the time, I was not even considering like elite athletics. I was not considering the opportunity to go race around the world and be uh, you know, hopefully fulfill my dream of being one of the best paratriathletes ever. Um, but it was more like, I can go walk my dogs. I can, you know, if I have children in the future, I'll be able to go to the park with them or ride a bike with them around the neighborhood. Um, it was really that, which was the primary motivation, being able to continue to go hiking and spend, spend time with my friends, um, and family who are all also very active, um, and outdoors. Is there, I mean, obviously we'll talk with her in a sec, but I mean, there are different, a bunch of different categories related to like how much you, how, how much of your leg you have and how much, are there neurological disability categories too or not? So, um, the way triathlon works is there are essentially, um, six different categories on each end. You have one, which you have one, which is the wheelchair category. Um, so they race in hand cycles and racing chairs, and then you have four ambulatory categories in the middle. And that ranges from minor impairment to the most impaired. And then you have a visually impaired blind category, both the wheelchair and the blind category are factored. But in the middle, you have all of the ambulatory categories. And that's where I fall in. When you go through a process called classification, that's when you provide all of your medical documentation, and they decide kind of which category you fall into. All of your disabilities are taken into account to find your classification. So, um, the classifications are mixed per se, like there are different disabilities, but the goal is that all classifications are on a level playing field. So in the least disabled category, you have individuals who are missing their um, missing their arm below their elbow, but then you also have individuals who have a hand, but it's like paralyzed, they can't use it type of thing. Right. So um And then in my category, you have people who are like above the knee amputees and that is their only disability. But then you also have people who have all four limbs and have neurological um, disabilities, um, severe neurological disabilities. Or you have me where I'm kind of like a mixed disability with amputee and neurological. So um, my classification is pretty more complicated than just being like a straight amputee. But um, I, you know, they've tried really hard to do a lot of research and um, scientific research, peer-reviewed research, validated research to try to make every category as fair as possible. That sounds very complicated, like the whole classification process. <laughs> it is very, it is very complicated. Um, I think the biggest thing to take away for people wa- get, that are going to be watching the Paralympics is that... Um, there is a wheelchair category, a blind category, and then there will be three ambulatory categories racing. Um, one, cat- one category is, and then some are have a minimum impairment, some have a maximum impairment. I happen okay. to fall into the maximum ambulatory impairment category. So you obviously, like, I mean, you said you weren't even thinking about elite athletics. You were thinking about walking your dog, but obviously you started thinking about elite athletics again because you ended up kind of going all in, right? I mean, you were running, I mean, you didn't just do try, you also ran track, right? So how did you kind of find (laughs) out about the Paralympics and get all the way into it? How does one do that? Yeah. Um, So I had learned about the Paralympics actually prior to my amputation in 2012. um, And I did my first race um, at that time in 2012. Actually, I think I learned, actually, I was told about it in 2010 when I raced at Collegiate Nationals. And at the time, I had never heard of it ever before. I had no idea what it was. And I was like, no, 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 I'm fine. I'm having fun in college, like, not really interested, but thanks type of thing. Um, In 2012, I was finally convinced to give it a try. Um, 
And the sport was just found out it was going to be in the Paralympic Games. It was newer um, in the sense of like elite competition. Paratriathlon had been around for years and years and years, but um, it was kind of just picking up steam and becoming more and more competitive. And that's really what got me interested was the competitiveness of it and the ability to dream of being an elite athlete again. Um, That was kind of the goal and the dream before I acquired my disability. And so to be given a new pathway to accomplish that dream was really what kind of got me interested and motivated to give it a try. So in 2014, I kind of decided I would go all in and see, um, do everything I could to uh, see how far I could make it. Um, And the goal was to make it to Rio in 2016. And as I started training and as the games got closer, you know, I had these small goals first. It was to do well at nationals and it was to make, you know, to compete internationally, to compete at world championships, medal at world championships. Um, and as I started accomplishing these goals, I, the goals just kept getting bigger. So I wanted to win a world cup. And then in 2015 is really where things turned around up until 2015, I kept finishing as the third American and, um, on the Olympic side, you get three, you can earn up to three spots on the Paralympic side. You can only earn up to two. And so being the third American was not going to cut it. And, um, I knew that if I wanted to be there, I was going to have to be better. And so going into throughout all of 2015, third, 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 and we were sweeping the podium every time, but it didn't matter because third American was out. It didn't matter if I was the third best in the world, I was out. And, so I knew I had to do better going into world championships in Chicago in 2015. I got, um, an invite at the last minute. And so I can't went out to Chicago and the night before the race, I was like, my goal is to be the second American. And one of the national team coaches literally said to me, like, let's not set our sights too high. <laughs> Something along those lines. Um, And I was like, well, I'll show you. And so I won instead. Um, And so that was really kind of the turning point for me. Um, It was really the first race I was able to put together, a race that I felt what met my training. Um, And then after that race, I was undefeated all the way going into Rio in 2016. And I feel like we have to be clear, because obviously the Americans ended up sweeping the podium at Rio. And so we have to be clear, like there, you did, America did end up with three spots. There's like this extra invite spot in the yeah, world. So that's yeah. like, gets all really confusing. There's like yeah. some extra invites the international com- committee can give, um, but nobody wants to be waiting on an invite, right? right. Like you want like your invitation signed, sealed and delivered <laughs> um, through your own merit. And so, um, and so in March of 2016, I won continental championships and was able to, uh, solidify my spot for Rio that summer. And I mean, you ended up doing track and triathlon and in Rio. Is it hard? How do you, is it hard to do both? It seems hard, but then like a lot of people do it. So I'm like, yeah, um, it's definitely not easy. Uh, the train, you know, I ran the or I ran the 200 in Rio. I was eligible for the 100 and 200. The 100 was the night before the triathlon. So I chose to not enter that. Um, and obviously the training's not even close, right? Running a 200 and running a 5k, like we're not even in the same realm here. Um, and so triathlon was my main focus and I did throw track workouts in usually about once, maybe twice a week. Um, it's definitely not easy. I did come from a running background. I did come from a track and cross country background. So I think it definitely helped. Um, but at the end of the day, sprinting is not my passion. Um, and, <laughs> you know, it was it was fun. It was exciting to be able to do two sports at the Paralympic Games. Um, but there are also some downsides um, that I would have never guessed until I got there. And so... Like, um, like what? Like, give us an example. So I won my gold medal on September 11th. And... Um, for anybody who doesn't know, when you go to the games and you win a medal, like 
first of all, you already have a really crazy day. Like my day started at 4 a.m., getting equipment, getting breakfast, like all of those things for a normal race, right? But then as soon as you cross the finish line, like your day has barely just begun. Like you cross the finish line and you have hordes of media that want to talk to you. You have doping control. You have your medal ceremony. If you didn't finish doping control, then you have to go back to doping control. But then media has scheduled some other times with you. And we had a sponsor party. Like then I got to go back to the hotel. I had 10 minutes to shower. And then we had a sponsor party that night. All through this, like I hadn't even eaten yet. Like I had no food. I had nothing. So go to the sponsor party. We find, you know, there all night. And then we go get dinner. Um, I always get ice cream after a race. So then it was obligatory that I went and got ice cream. Then I had to pack that night and be in a car the next morning at 4.30 to go to the track for prelims. Um, So during all of that, I feel like I didn't really get to celebrate my gold medal moment. Um, It was just from the moment I crossed the line until I finished track two days later, it was just chaos. Um, Moving from the hotel we were in to like packing all of my equipment, all of my bags to go back or to go to the track to run prelims, to then go back to the village, to then get ready for semis and finals. It was just um, kind of chaos, to be honest. Um, And so then when the schedule came out for the games in Tokyo, I decided I didn't want to do that again. I wanted to be able to take in more of the experience of racing the one event and, um, being able to celebrate my accomplishments, if that's a medal or uh, whatever it is. Obviously now it's like a weird games. So it's not even like you're going to get the, it's not like you can hang out. <laughs> yeah. After. Now now it's all different. So if I knew like hindsight 2020, if I knew all of that, then I might've considered doing track, but I didn't when I made the decision. So here we are. <laughs> so do you feel, okay. So media is crazy. All that stuff's crazy. Do you feel like people pay a lot of attention to the Paralympics? Like after you won gold and everything was it like, did it feel like it was really intense? Did it feel like, like people pay as much attention? Um, I would say in the U S there's definitely not as much attention given to the Paralympics as the Olympics. It is getting Mm -hmm. better. Um, but on the other hand, I was kind of surprised about the, about the amount of attention that my win did get. Um, it was, surprising to me to be included in media from the Huffington Post to the New York Times um, and just like this wide range, uh, wide array of media, which I really never expected. Um, This time around, there's a lot more coverage and we're really hoping Hmm. that we will start to see um, more support for the Paralympic Games. Hmm. Yeah, I think it might have also been because it was like September 11th and the women swept the podium and it's like there were these really nice pictures. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there was probably a lot of things that went into it for (laughs) sure. So, um, but yeah, it definitely was pretty crazy. Um, You kind of talked about like all the training. So then I think sometimes people don't really know what training goes into being a Paralympian. Uh, So obviously it's basically the same, basically the same, but a little bit different. What does go into a week? Like how much are you training What's a regular training week look like? Yeah. So I think one of the biggest misconceptions is like, you don't just sign up to go to the Paralympics. Like (laughs) that's not a thing. Um, And uh, sometimes the media uh, seems to portray it a little differently um, on the Paralympic side than the Olympic side, but you can't just sign up and uh, it does take years to, first of all, it's a two year qualifying period. So um Unless you are able to come in at the last minute and take a spot, somebody else qualified for your country, it is a two-year qualifying period that requires racing all across the uh, all across the globe. So, um, but training-wise, I typically swim um, five to six days a week. Uh, some of those obviously are higher days than uh, or harder days than others. Typically, run four to five days a week, cycle four to five days a week. I do three days of actual strength training and then two days of more body weight injury prevention, um, Mm. type of training as well. Um, so that's the actual physical training part of it. And depending on the time of the season, that can average anywhere from 20, 17, 20 hours up to 35 hours a week, um, or more. It just kind of depends on where we're at and our cycle. Um, but the other thing that all goes into it, obviously, is the traveling and the racing, but meeting with dietitians and coaches and sports medicine and recovery and uh, sports psychology and all of that. Um, it definitely becomes uh, more than a full-time job when you put it all together every week. 
Yeah, I mean, and then you also have all the other stuff with like you guys have a lot of gear. You guys have a lot of gear, yeah. a lot of stuff involved. <laughs> a lot of stuff. <laughs> we don't travel light at all. So, <laughs> uh, you also, I know, obviously, this extra year. I mean, ups and downs, right? Like, I know you kind of went then through a whole bunch of more medical issues this past year, and so. On the one hand, it's like, well, you've had you've had time now to rebound, but on the other hand, you know, you had this extra year of going back to the hospital, going through a bunch of different infections, going through more doctors, kind of not knowing exactly what was going wrong, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, you know, it's funny because when the games were postponed, the first thing I said is this is going to help some people and hurt others. Right. And I had no idea where I would fall on that spectrum. And obviously at the time I thought I was like, oh, sweet, like an extra year? I like, this is going to be awesome. Um, little did I know the world had something totally different planned for me. <laughs> so, um, yeah, at the beginning of 2020, I ended up with two infections in my legs that required surgery to, uh, clean them out. And they were really close to my knee. So there's a lot of concern about them getting to the bone. So there was really nothing we could do other than surgery to treat the problem. Um, after that, I begged and begged and begged the surgeon to take my stitches out early to be able to race what would have been our selection event for the summer games in 2020. Um, he finally obliged, but the caveat was I was not allowed to wear a prosthetic. I was not allowed to sweat, like run or bike um, literally until the morning of my race. I was not allowed to put a leg on. I had not worn a prosthetic leg. I had not walked since January 1st. And this was uh, the middle of March. And so I, you know, I had been doing strength training in the gym on one leg. I had been rowing. I had been doing bands in the garage. Um, when I got a chance, I swam, but when I had stitches, I couldn't swim. So there was a lot of times I couldn't swim. And so the night before that selection event, it was canceled, um, postponed. You know, it was kind of the beginning of COVID and we were all sent home and I was like, Phew. like <laughs> I just like thanking my lucky stars, right? Like, okay, this is going to give me some time to go home, to get healthy, to get training. And that's when we were all really naive and thought this was going to last for like four to six weeks. Um, right, right. And so then when the games got postponed, I was like, okay, cool. Like I have some time. I can like make up my fitness. I can get back into things. Um, and then on July 4th, I ended up really sick. I had a fever of 104. I went to the ER. Um, I was confident I had an infection and I was initially told that I had an infection in my bloodstream. I was hospitalized for two days and then sent home because the infectious disease doctor did not feel I looked sick enough to have an infection in my bloodstream. Um, so I was sent home with no antibiotics and that started essentially a two month process of trying to get somebody to a believe I was sick and B figure out what the problem was at the beginning of October. It was found out that the infection that I had in my bloodstream because it was left untreated had turned into endocarditis, which is an infection of your heart. Mm -hmm. Um, and I also had blood clots in my heart, which, um, an infection in your bloodstream also known as sepsis is serious. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, add into that an infection in your heart with blood clots, it's much more serious. I was admitted to cardiac ICU that night and that started four months of being in and out of the hospital, in and out of ICU. Um, and absolutely no training, you know, absolutely right. I mean, no yeah. real training, um, at that time. It was, I mean, obviously like, okay. Infections in hospitals freak me out all the time. Cause you can, is this, where's the initial infection? Is it related to your other issues or is this just, I mean, things happen to everybody, right? Like, um, just you know, we'll, we'll never have like, we'll right. never have an exact answer for some reason. I tend to get infections frequently. Mm. Um, and when I get them, they tend to be really bad. Um, mm. but we do not know a link between my other conditions and like being so prone to infections. Like the fact that I had three very major infections, uh, you know, infections requiring surgery to treat, um, or, you know, an infection in the bloodstream in your heart, like those are all very major infections. We're not right. talking about like a small scrape on your leg that gets infected. Um, we'll never know the answer to that. Um, could be bad luck. It could be connected. We're not sure. Right. Interesting. Cause you know how there's the thing where like, you start to think like, bad luck because more bad luck. And it seems like it's always, it seems like it's always just one thing after another. Yeah. <laughs> so you've been back training since February. Um, ish. ish. Um, <laughs> I would say I, I uh, wasn't cleared for full training until a, 
about the end of April. Um, I did technically come back in February, but that was to swim. I was allowed to swim 500 meters three times a week. Um, I was allowed to walk and to like spin on my bike for like 30 minutes, but like the total time I could spend a week was like initially like two hours. So, um, I'm not sure in my, I don't count that as training personally. It was more of like, I was just like, I've said, I was like, when people are like, but you're back training. I'm like, I'm exercising. Like I'm not even meeting like the bare minimum you know, recommendations from the CDC for exercise, let alone training as an elite athlete. So um, I think I, it was about April by the time I considered myself to be back at train, like back training. So that's May, June, you have like four months, give or take, right? Yeah, to make up for like a lost year. Yeah, yeah something yeah. like that. <laughs> so how is that going? <laughs> Stressful? Um, <laughs> you know how they tell you not to cram for a test? I right. also don't suggest cramming for the Paralympics. Um, <laughs> no, it's um, it, it's been a challenge for sure. And there's definitely been some physical challenges. Um, but the mental and emotional challenge, I think, has really been what has surprised me the most. I think I, you know, I'm no, I'm no stranger to coming back from illness. I'm no stranger um to being in the hospital and all of that. I mean, that happens every season. Like it's literally like my coach gets annoyed because I'm like, Oh, I got discharged from the hospital this morning. Here I am at practice. Um, but that just became my kind of my normal life, but I had never been out for, you know, from July to April essentially. Um, and so coming back, I was, you know, literally at ground, you know, I was at step square one ground zero, whatever you want to call it. Um, And so it's really been a testament to um, really just the team I have around me, um, my ability to like kind of, I'm uh, kind of let go and like trust them, which I'm not good at doing. Um, (laughs) So, um, but all in all, um, I think there was a lot of doubt that I could race in June and qualify my spot. There are still three very competitive Americans. Um, the other two mm-hmm. Americans had been racing internationally all year. I hadn't raced in two years. Um, and they had been on the podium at every single race. Both of them had run, won um, World Series events and I hadn't raced in two years. And so I think there was a lot of doubt um, if I would be able to um, right. earn that second spot. And so um, come the selection event in June, it was really just about making the team, doing whatever I needed to do to make the team, nothing more, nothing less. And after kind of getting that out of the way, it has not been smooth sailing, but I felt like I could then turn my focus to the actual games instead of this, like, uh, instead of qualifying, which, you know, prior to getting sick, there was no, there was really no question that I would qualify. Right, right. So you had to like kind of go backwards and then regroup. Yeah. Okay. And you were saying now you're so the Paralympics, you guys are actually going to a pre games camp in Kona. Yes. Why Kona? So um our pre camp initially was planned for Japan. Um, and the whole point of a pre-camp is really just to help adjust to time zone and weather in this case, the heat and the humidity, um, with COVID and all of the restrictions Japan has, Japan was no longer an option for the pre-camp. Um, and so kind of the closest we could find was, um, in Kona. And so you guys are going there and then from there you're flying all together and it's like, it actually sounds in some ways more organized than the Olympics. Like you guys are all going together as a group. Yeah. So there's definitely, there's going to be some good and bad, right? Like (laughs) everything right now is what we had to do like twice the amount of paperwork because Hawaii requires a lot of paperwork to be able to go, um, into the state. And so we had to do all of the Tokyo paperwork, all of the Hawaii paperwork, which let me tell you, like this is hours worth of paperwork and they do really try, they do try really hard to take as much of the burden off of it as, as is possible. Um, but there's still a lot that has to be done on our end. Um, and so there's definitely more paperwork, but I feel like once I get to Kona, I'm like, I'm no longer in charge. Like somebody else will tell me where to be, when to be like how. Um, and then I think at that point, like hopefully it'll be a little less stressful and, um, we'll be able to all go into Tokyo together the downside to that is when you land in Tokyo, you're not allowed to leave the airport until your entire group has passed right. the like uh, customs and testing procedures, which we have heard can re- 
be up to 12 hours or more. Um, and the bigger the group, the longer it takes. So that will be one downside of all of us <laughs> traveling together is we may be stuck in a room in the airport for 12 hours. <laughs> you're like, you're really going to bond, really going to make some connections. <laughs> Either that or we will hate each other. I don't know. <laughs> okay. And you're the actual, I always get the dates wrong. I'm going to have to double check them and I'll put them in the show notes, but your actual race is when? So my actual race is August 28th at 7.01 AM in Japan, which I believe it's the day before, so yeah, which, which is, is the day before. Friday, August 27th here in the States. Um, and, and yeah, you'll have to put it, the notes in, but I believe yeah. it's like 3 p.m. Um, East Coast. Pacific. Uh, yeah, Pacific. Like 5 p.m. East Coast, 3 p.m. I don't know, something along those lines. Yeah, yeah. If it's the same, yeah, it should be about 5 or 6 uh, East Coast time, Friday before. Uh, and do you think then, all right, so we talked about how kind of like we're hoping the Paralympics get more attention. It was crazy last time. Are you able to make a living then? Do you think coming out of this, because you've talked some about how much it cost to be a Paralympian? Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. It is expensive. Being a Paralympian is expensive. We have extra equipment. We have prosthetic legs. None of that is covered by insurance. Um, Insurance in the U S has deemed any sport of athletic leg, not medically necessary. Um, And so, and even our walking legs, they, by insurance can only be replaced once every three years. So those are all the costs that we do take on as athletes. Um, if we don't have a donor, a sponsor, a grant or something like that, as the Paralympic games are becoming more well-known, um, there is definitely more money available, but I do not mm-hmm. think it matches the Olympic side yet. Um, I, we pretty much all do other types of work. Some people hold full-time jobs. Some right. people have part-time jobs. Some people have remote jobs. Um, after my win in Rio, um, there was a small desire to have me as a public speaker. Um, and kind of the more I spoke, the more word got out about um, me and my abilities to speak. And so that's kind of one of the big ways I... Um, okay. help fund my triathlon habit is usually how I say it. Um, <laughs> um, as well as I do have some amazing sponsors as well. Um, but as a whole, at this time, it is very challenging to make a living as a Paralympic athlete. Um, and I would say very few are actually able to do so. Got it. Okay. What do you usually speak about? I'm just curious. Um, so I have spoke from, you know, anywhere from professional schools, such as medical school, medical schools, PTs, hospitals, stuff like that, all the way up to fortune 500 companies. Mm. And every time I speak, it is a little bit different, but most of the time outside of the medical stuff, most of the time it is about goal setting, um, accomplishing dreams, overcoming challenges, uh, things like that. Um, on the medical side, I speak a lot to the importance of, Provider communication. Yeah. Yeah. Like provider (laughs) communication, telling my like actual, you know, telling more of the medical side of my story, not just the sport side, which when I speak uh, to companies, it's more usually like the journey of like a very snippet of what I went through medically, but more focused on the sport. When I speak to medical companies, it's much more focused on the medical journey and how the medical field, I feel failed me um, Mm -hmm. and how that can be prevented in the future. When you speak to triathletes, what do they most want to know? Um, Usually triathletes want to know more about training. Um, My time, (laughs) like my PRs and my times, like I think everybody, I think they're, everybody also is like, Oh, they have disabilities. They must not be that fast. Um, Right. 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 But you know, we have people who are running 15 minute five Ks. Um, I have won some able body races. Like we definitely are, we're not slow. <laughs> um, <laughs> and so there's always questions about my PRs, what I eat, uh, okay. you know, those like typical things that I think probably pretty similar to what the Olympians are asked as well. Yeah, no, what you eat is like a thing everyone always is, which I always think is sort of a weird thing to be obsessed about, but yeah, it's literally the number one question I'm asked from media to even like, even when I speak at companies, like it's like the number one question I'm asked. The, uh, the one I heard last week that some athlete got asked, it was the weirdest question I've ever heard is how do you manage yeast infections with a wet swimsuit training all day? And I was like, what? (laughs) Anyway, weird questions people ask you. What's the weirdest question someone's asked you? Um, I would say the weirdest question I have probably been asked. Oh, man, there's a lot. Um, 
I don't even know. Definitely. That one takes the cake. Nothing as weird as that for <laughs> sure. <laughs> um, I think the weirdest question I've ever been asked typically has to do with like, uh, more around a lack, lack of like disability knowledge. Like, right, right. uh, yeah. Like, sure. Why do you call yourself disabled if you're an athlete type of thing? And it's like, well, right. hold on here. <laughs> like, um, but yeah, no, nothing as weird as that one. That's for sure. Okay. Okay. So after uh, Rio, after Tokyo, whatever it looks wrong, are you looking forward to Paris? Are you like planning? What are you, what are your plans from here? Yeah. So Paris is definitely in the cards. Um, I do like to caveat that with caveat that with, I, have always said that as long as I am enjoying what I do um, Mm -hmm. and feel like I can continue to improve that I will continue racing the moment that I'm no longer enjoying sport or no longer feel I can improve. um, Because at that point um, I feel like I probably am no longer am enjoying it as much as I used to and chasing those goals and dreams that I would more than be more than happy to retire. But at this time, Paris is in the cards. And I have said that if I go through Paris, it's going to be really hard to not go for home soil games. Um, <laughs> so at this point, I am looking at Paris and LA. Um, but we we can cross Brisbane out. I'm going to be old by then. So <laughs> Okay. All right. We got to like at least set a boundary but, somewhere. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, although Australia would be amazing. Um, I, I don't foresee that one in my future, but so that's kind of, you know, athletically where I want to go. Um, so we'll continue racing. I would love to, you know, take some time after Tokyo for a little bit more personal time. Um, hopefully do some work, some more speaking and stuff like that. Now that those events are starting to pick back up after COVID, um, and then really jump back into training, you know, with the three years, it's going to be a different cycle for sure. It's, you know, mm-hmm. we're going to jump back in much sooner um, and much faster than we would typically, I think. Right. It's kind of funny to be like, oh, it's just three years because that's actually kind of a long time. I mean, it's kind of a long time. But when we plan our lives in like right. four year periods, like three doesn't seem unreasonable anymore. Like we're like, oh, three. No problem. <laughs> All right. Outside of triathlon, though, because I mean, at some point, maybe you'll stop doing triathlon, you know, maybe. What is your favorite thing to do outside of triathlon? Um, Outside of triathlon, I I mean, I love being outdoors, hanging out with friends outdoors, hiking, camping, kayaking, um, really just exploring. Um, That's probably my like my favorite thing to do. Um, Something that's not active would probably be um, I love baking and I've always considered kind of starting a side hustle as a baker, like a bakery as a side hustle. So you could do that. You could do like Alyssa's bakery. I've already got a name. It would be Buttercup Bake Shop. Oh, I don't know where. I don't know why, but that's what it would be. (laughs) No good reason. (laughs) Awesome. Well, thank you so much for chatting with us and, and good luck in Tokyo. Thank you so much for having me. It was great talking with you today. Thanks to Alyssa for opening up about all she's been through and good luck in Tokyo. We'll be watching and we'll be sure to share links and info on how to watch in the show notes. Keep training and keep listening.